Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 707. April Rennie is sharing how you can thrive in a realm of of constant change, the key superpowers we need. So you'll learn one, the key mindset shift that helps us thrive in flux. Two, how to escape the trap of a more mentality. And three, how to rescript your mind to prepare for change. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or links to items we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP707. And just check out awesomeatyourjob.com in general for oodles of resources like full text transcripts of all these episodes summary goodies sent right to your email, the gold nuggets, the 10 days to winning at work email course. We got a lot of cool stuff. So come pay us a visit. And here's April's story. April is a World Economic Forum young global leader and ranked one of the 50 leading female futurists in the world by Forbes. April Rennie is a game changer. She helps individuals and organizations rethink and reshape their relationship with change, uncertainty, and a world in flux. She's a trusted advisor to well-known startups, companies, financial institutions, nonprofits, and think tanks worldwide including Airbnb and Nike into at the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank, Nesta, Trove, Any Road, and Unsettled, as well as governments ranging from Singapore to South Africa, Canada to Colombia, Italy to India. April is the author of Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. Big thanks to April for sharing her wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's April. April, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm excited to hear about the wisdom you have to share about flux. But first, I want to hear about your notorious handstands. What is the story here? Oh, I've been outed. So I have been doing handstands for most of my life. Learned to do them as a child, as a gymnast, and then kept doing them. And then at a certain point in my life, realized that none of my friends that I was doing them with as a child were doing them anymore. (laughs) And it became a bit of a like signature, I suppose. So I travel a lot. I work internationally. And back in my 20s, actually, some family members challenged me to take a photo of myself doing a handstand when I would go to interesting places. They did not realize how seriously I would take them on that challenge. And so here we are years later have visited more than a hundred countries and have handstands in the most random, but also most interesting of places. And so my goal is to keep doing them when I'm hopefully in triple digits. We'll see. 
Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I imagine you, I don't know, you're at the Taj Mahal or something, mm-hmm. <laughs> doing, doing yeah. handstands, and then like you gathering a crowd, and so that you are also the tourist attraction. Has that happened? It's funny you bring that up. Yes, the Taj Mahal, the Pyramids of Giza, the Colosseum in Rome. I mean, take your pick of, of well-known, but also really off the beaten path places as well. And what what I love is that the vast majority of my handstands over the years have been done when I've been traveling on my own. Now, my husband does travel with me and he's a wonder, he knows the drill. He's a wonderful photographer. But most of the time, I actually have to find somebody to take this picture, oh, yeah. which means introducing myself to a stranger and trying to explain to them. And often, you know, their, their native language is not English. So I'm trying to explain to them in a foreign language that I'm going to stand on my hands and they need to take a picture. And of course, you get this look of like, I don't think I understand what you're saying at all. And if I do understand what you're saying, you're crazy. Right. (laughs) And then we go through the paces and they get it. And then oftentimes, yes, a small crowd gathers, which is just fun in terms of meeting locals. But kids start tumbling and joining in. People start laughing and shouting. It becomes a bit of a just like a little celebration, I suppose. And for me, it's not at that point about the handstand. It's about immediately getting to break the ice with people I wouldn't otherwise get to meet. And it has often led to cups of coffee or tea afterwards or like tell us about your family or, you know, usually where's your husband? Why are you traveling alone? You know, those sorts of things as well. So Mm -hmm. thanks for asking. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, this is cool. Well, (laughs) I I don't have a clever segue, but maybe there is one. (laughs) Uh, Upside down perspective on the world is what I call it, which leads into how we navigate change. (laughs) You do the work for me. This is perfect. Well, yeah, let's, let's hear about your book, Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. What is the big idea behind this book? Yeah, the, the big idea is that in a world and a future that is full of change and constant, relentless change, that we as humans need to radically reshape our relationship to uncertainty to have a healthy and productive outlook. Mm-hmm. Well said. So radically reshape our relationship to uncertainty. I'm sure there's vari- variability and variation quite a bit from person to person. But if you had to generalize, what would you say is the quote unquote typical uh, relationship to uncertainty and, and what is an optimal transformation of it to it's like, where are we now and where quote should it be? Yeah, great question. Well, let's just pause for a minute and think about change which includes uncertainty, but just a sense of something what is or was something and is becoming something else. Change is messy. It's complicated. Humans tend to love change we opt into. So a new relationship, a new job, a new adventure, right? A new haircut. We tend to really resist change we can't control. So the kind of change that blindsides you on a Tuesday afternoon, it goes against your expectations, it disrupts your plans, and it creates an environment of uncertainty, right? Mm. Now, a change that's easy for you might be really, really hard for me, and vice versa. We know that more change and uncertainty is around the corner, yet knowing this often freaks us out. So you sort of get these layers of like, it's complicated and it's really messy, but When it comes to uncertainty, I mean, there's also this piece like humans really want to be able to know what's going to happen. We want things to go our way. We want to command, predict, control, engineer the future. And 
the last 18 months, but we can come back to this. I didn't write the book about the last 18 months. The last 18 months, however, have been an incredible wake up to just how unfit, how outdated that way of seeing the world and our place in it is. Mm-hmm. And so this radical reshaping is like, wow, we have structured and we can come back to this, you know, part of it is neurobiology, neuroscience, part of it is psychology, part of it is just the human condition. We have in many ways, I think, deluded ourselves into believing that we can predict and control and command the future and that we can have certainty and that we can yeah, predict things and know what's going to happen. And nothing could be further from the truth. And in a world in flux, and when we think about flux as constant, relentless change, and before you've responded to one change, something else has happened, and this goes on and on and on. And that's actually what the future looks like. More of that, not not less. That there is this, oh, this isn't just a wake-up call. This is also a kind of warm-up for what's ahead. And how can we get ahead of that? And instead of constantly reacting to change, so something happens and you're trying to triage it, how can we reshape our relationship to change from the inside out to be fit for this world in flux, which is very different than the kind of world many of us were taught to believe we lived in? Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that is that is quite a question. And part of me wonders, is that even possible? I take it you, you think the answer is yes. <laughs> can you share with us an inspiring example or a case study of someone who's just a flux master? Well, I love that you bring this up because by and large, humans are really pretty bad at this. And that's part of why I wrote the book. I like to say that I've been working on this book since 2018. So it's been the better part of three years, like in the, in the writing, but it's really been more like three decades in the making, in the seeding of these ideas. And a big chunk of that time was spent both as a futurist and a strategist, also just as a human, and observing that on the whole, you know, humans, we we can adapt to change pretty well when we're forced to, when our back is against the wall. But as a proactive, I'm going to lean into change because it's good for me, or I'm actually going to see a change I don't want to have happen. I'm going to see that nonetheless as an opportunity for growth and learning and improvement. We don't do that naturally. And what was making me and candidly continues to make me very concerned about humans moving forward, both individually and collectively as humanity, is that we are in many cases stuck in mindsets and with what I call scripts that are not fit for a world in flux. And we need help. And so I can point to individuals that are good at certain of the flux superpowers, let's say, but on the whole, you know, and at the risk of generalizing, are we really fit? Are our mindsets grooved for a future of constant relentless change. I reckon they are not. But in that is an enormous opportunity for each and every one of us to level up. Mm -hmm. So we can come back to some of the examples, but I want to put that out there. Now, you might prove me wrong here, Pete, but I've never met anybody who's like, change it, tick that box. I'm good, right? Everyone struggles with some part of it, but we've all developed our own unique ways of dealing with it, talking about it, feeling about it, etc. There's a lot we can learn from one another, but I believe we are very early into this journey into a future full of flux. But as such, we will all have homework to do, but we've all also been given 
I look at it as almost like this gift of growth and improvement by upgrading our, our mental muscles about change. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so sure. Could, could we hear an example of someone who has got at least a couple of the superpowers of Flux going for them that seems to be doing pretty, pretty good when it comes to constant, relentless change in their world? Yeah. An example that I often talk about in regards to flux, and again, it's not all eight superpowers, it's a couple of them, but it is Airbnb and founders Brian Chesky and Joe Gebbia. And if you go back and here, I'll tease out a few of the flux superpowers. They built this company that's, you know, home sharing. Okay. They saw value in empty space in people's homes that Hotels wrote them off as crazy and foolish, said this is never going to go anywhere. Lo and behold, one of the eight flux superpowers is to see what's invisible. They saw value in what other people couldn't see. They saw invisible value basically and tapped into that and unlocked it and created a company that is more valuable than the five largest hotel chains combined. That's a very fluxy way of seeing one's business model, if you will, to see what's invisible, find what other people can't see and, and unlock the value that's in that. But at the same time, another one of the flux superpowers is called start with trust. Again, go back to Airbnb. What were people telling them? This is crazy. People will never stay in other people's homes. Why would we trust other humans? And I'm looking at this always against the backdrop of how do we navigate change and think about who you turn to when change really hits. You turn to your trusted relationships. And if you don't have many, you're in a world of hurt far greater than if you do. And Airbnb early on signaled, we actually think humans are trustworthy, not This isn't blind trust or naive trust, but we actually think that we can build a business around humans trusting one another. Lo and behold, they have. And that too, I'm looking at this from the perspective of how do we navigate change together? How do we navigate change better? So I'll pause there, but those are some of the superpowers that start surfacing as we dig deeper. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe let's have a, a quick overview of the, the eight superpowers and maybe have your, your definition and a sentence or two for, for what that means. And then we'll, we'll see where to dig deeper. Yeah, sure. So there are eight flux superpowers. And I always like to say they're a menu, not a syllabus. So you do not have to do one before two or two before three, but they stand on their own and they also enhance one another. So the first flux superpower is to run slower, which says that in a world with an ever faster pace of change, your key to success is to slow your own pace. Mm -hmm. And I'll put in a quick caveat here too. Each and every one of these is counterintuitive in some way. It goes against what oftentimes society teaches us. We can circle back to this if you'd like. The second flux superpower is one that I was just talking about, which is see what's invisible. And this says that when the future feels uncertain or blurry, rather than focusing on what's visible and what's straight in front of you, we need to focus on what's invisible. Now, this includes both identifying your blind spots, but also uncovering new forms of value, new forms of talent, new ideas, new forms of inspiration. The third flux superpower is get lost, which is all about going beyond your comfort zone and your relationship with the unknown. 
The fourth flux superpower is start with trust that says, when trust seems broken, assume good intent. And this is all about, as I was mentioning, how we navigate change better together. The fifth flux superpower is know you're enough. And this gets at our quest for happiness and satisfaction and really the tension between our obsession with more, 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 more everything, and how that's mostly making people miserable in my experience. The way I like to put it is when you're always after more, you will never, ever find enough. And yet when you know you're enough, you'll immediately begin to see abundance. And again, more we can think of as more income, more power, more prestige, more love, more likes, more clicks, more everything, right? Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to know you're enough? And that's Y-O-U-R. People often ask me if that's a typo. And I say, no, knowing you're enough includes knowing that you are are enough, just as you are without doing anything more. So we can come back to that if you'd like. You know, it's funny when I, when I read that. Yeah. I guess I, w- I didn't even think about the apostrophe and it was like, no, you're enough. Like your number, your, yeah. your, your level, like yeah. at, at what is the level at which it is enough. So, which could be different for you versus me versus another. So But yeah, layers. Thank you. Okay. What's next? (laughs) So the sixth flux superpower is create your portfolio career, which this is about designing your professional development and identity in ways that are fit for a future of work in flux. And the punchline here is that I firmly believe that the career of the future looks far less like a singular path to pursue and much more like your portfolio that you create and curate as an artist or an investor would. Mm -hmm. Seventh superpower is be all the more human, which gets at our relationship to technology and the tension that we have in spending ever more time with our devices, yet ever less time with one another. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, the eighth flux superpower is let go of the future, which is all about our relationship to control. Something I have found is tricky for most everyone today, and I always put a caveat on this one as well. Letting go of the future does not mean giving up. It does not mean failure. It does not mean doomsdaying. It actually means quite the opposite. So again, going back to this counterintuitiveness, even this contrarianness that pervades much of the thesis of flux. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whew, so much, so much. Fun. <laughs> well, so tell us then. When it comes to professionals seeking to be awesome mm-hmm. at their jobs, what's your take on what is the the most important yet also most rare of these superpowers that we should really zero in on cultivating? Well, I'm not sure that I would put the most important and the most rare. We can take two. We'll take two. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll do two because I can definitely tell you which ones are most popular. Let me do this. I'm going to put out a few because they're all very, very sticky for professionals in the workplace and how to be awesome at your job. No question. So no doubt, no question, perhaps no surprise. Uh, The first superpower runs slower. Absolutely popular and difficult because this is burnout. This is exhaustion. This is anxiety. This is why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I constantly, why am I in this rat race? Why am I on this hamster wheel? How did I end up here? This is not what I had planned for my profession, for my livelihood, etc. So run slower for sure. 
interestingly, as soon as you start getting into run slower, you do end up often over at know you're enough. And that's sort of how do we define what is valuable and important and, and what metrics are you using, not just to judge how you show up at work and what you quote unquote do, but also how you show up in life. And so it really starts to unpack some of our values and whether or not those values are reflected at our organization, so on and so forth. And then the third one, which not surprisingly, it's, it is the one superpower that is related to work and the workplace. And that is create your portfolio career. So any of those would be ones I would start with. Okay. Well, we talk about knowing you're enough. Y-O-U-R, mm -hmm. no apostrophe. Tell us, how do we arrive at that knowledge? Arriving at that knowledge, I think, is there's a, there's a process of peeling back the layers of your unique onion around this. And I like to ask people, and this, this does relate to every one of the superpowers in some way, getting your flux baseline. That's what I call it. And most people haven't really thought a lot about their relationship to change as a whole. We, we're busy reacting to change. Something happened and I need to like do something about it. But we're not really thinking about what are the things, what are the emotions and the feelings and the experiences that are driving me to react in the way that I am? And what is what I call in the book, what is my script about change? What are the stories and the narratives and the norms that I've been taught about how the world is supposed to work and what my role in it is supposed to be. And I share this because a lot of our scripts relates directly to knowing you're enough. A lot of our scripts are increasingly being shown to be not that fit for a world in flux. They're quite good for worlds that we can command and control and tie up in a neat, tidy bow, but they're not that good for when the future you thought you were going to have just melts or falls apart or doesn't work out like you thought it would be, like you thought it would, which I think many of us have experienced in different ways over the last 18 months. So back to knowing you're enough. For a lot of people, and here I would include myself, we were taught that more is better, like inherently better, and that the more you had, the more important you were, the more valuable you were to society. And I think for a lot of people, that's more money but also more power, more prestige, more love, more choices, more clothes, more clicks, more, like I was saying, it's more everything, right? Mm -hmm. And yet look around and ask yourself, what is that getting me? Is more actually, and here I would say in the workplace, the more meetings you have, the more productive you are. The more productive you are, and we can come back and question, meetings are not a good metric for productivity, mm -hmm. but the more hours I work. The more emails you get, the more important you are. The more yes. emails you send, the more productive you are. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And yet, and again, we can put this on a financial metric, an emotional metric, a workplace metric, take your pick. More is mostly making us miserable. It's not necessarily leading to greater happiness or satisfaction. It's not necessarily it might be making you feel more productive if you're measuring your life in how many emails you send, but not if you're measuring it necessarily in outputs, impacts, ways, number of people that you're able to serve and better and the quality of, of your own life that you're living. And so what I like to ask people, the punchline, the metric for this superpower is what is your enoughness? Have you thought about your point of enough? Because what I find a lot of times, and I'm generalizing a bit here, but 
we are, particularly in Western culture, we are really over-indexed on stuff. <laughs> we have more. A lot of people have more than they need in terms of stuff, whether that's cars or clothes or physical possessions. But we're kind of under-indexed on a lot of the humanity stuff. We actually don't have enough human connection. We don't have enough dignity. We don't have enough tolerance. We don't have enough integrity, right? So we've got this too much and not enough, but not really a sense of what's in the middle. And so I ask people, what do you have too much of and what do you have too little of? And, you know, too little can include, I have too few hours in the day. I have too little time to spend with my family. I have too little, you know, and you get into this sense of where we have a culture of insufficiency. And so finding your enough requires getting clear on what are you over and under indexed on. And Partly, I'm not giving one specific answer here because everyone's equation, everyone's relationship is different because each of us has a different lived experience and different things that we're strong at, weak at, etc. And so it's interesting because even on the enough factor, did you grow up with enough love in your household? I know it sounds a little bit woo-woo, but in fact, not enough love and care as a child will show up in all kinds of ways as an adult, that don't actually get you closer to your enough, you start to compensate for love with money, etc. And so all of this I throw out to get people to start peeling back the layers of their own onion around enough. Well, yeah, that's very thought-provoking in terms of what do you have too much of and, and, and not enough of. And it's funny when it comes to money, maybe nobody would say they have too much money, but they might say that they have more than enough money. So you can just change the words around a little bit. So this cycle of more, and again, to be really clear on all of these things, I'm not saying that more is bad or anything. I'm just mm -hmm. saying, let's get clear on what's really what here. I'm not saying that for any of the superpowers, I'm not saying that the, the, the counter is, it's not good or bad. It's more like, have you thought about this, that there are more options on the table than you might realize? Here's the thing about more though. How many people do you know that say, I will be happy when? I will be successful when I will be, you know, fill in the blank when, when implies that you don't have something you need, you need more. Mm -hmm. And yet when you get to that point, so let's just say more money, when I have more money, then what do you need? You need more money. It's no longer enough. You mm -hmm. need more. And you get on this vicious cycle that feeds on itself and that never allows you to acknowledge and rest and be easy with enough. Mm -hmm. And that's the part we get stuck, call it a hamster wheel, call it, you know, our own monkey brain that's running laps around our minds. But it keeps people from realizing that actually a decision to be happy, it actually can happen right now. Mm -hmm. And when you realize that you might already have enough, and that's your point of sufficiency, satisfaction, again, not too little, not too much. That's the kind of contentedness, and we can talk about the difference between happiness and contentedness, but this, that sense of peace and comfort as opposed to this drive forevermore. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying don't strive, don't try to do things. And I'm not saying, you know, what's interesting too is if you want more and more and more and more, okay, what's that more going to get you? And this is where it gets super interesting because I'm of the belief that if you want more, let's just use money. If you want more money so that you can hoard it or keep it for yourself, okay, I'm not sure how much better that's going to make the world. But if you want more in order that you can share it with others, in order that you can gift it, be generous, 
help better the lives of others, that's actually a pretty good more, but you're not keeping that for yourself, right? So you start mm-hmm. getting into issues around ego and, and generosity as well. Right. And I guess if, and we talk about hoarding it, like you won't probably won't feel much impact in terms of, I want more money because, I don't know, we're in an unsafe neighborhood with my, my children and I'm worried that they'll be shot. Okay. Well, if you have more money and you get to a different neighborhood, you'll, you'll probably feel that as an upgrade, you know, in the happiness and peace mm-hmm. and contentment parts of your life versus, you know, I've got 1 million in my mutual fund account and uh, two is just so much cooler <laughs> yeah. that you probably won't even really feel that impact at all. Except when you like refresh the page and go, Oh, two, nice. Now it should be three. <laughs> yeah. And there you are. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. And I'm going to, if I may, I'm going to share a, a personal story here because it factors in exactly to what we're talking about. And there is, it is interesting because a lot of times people are like, oh, I want more money because it's actually a hedge against uncertainty. And I totally get that, right? It is kind of the more money you have, the more options you have, the more ways that you can potentially navigate uncertainty and change. That's somewhat true. I also would say that that way of thinking can blind you to how, what's really needed when we navigate change. And the story I have to tell, it relates to why I ended up writing the book as well. And I've mentioned that I bring the lens of a futurist to change. I bring the lens of a global traveler and global citizen, if you will, to change. But I also bring a very human and lived experience with change and uncertainty. And I often say that my my journey or my baptism, my entry into flux began more than 25 years ago when I was in college and both of my parents died in a car accident. Hmm. And I share this because I was 20 and Speaking of careers and jobs and all of that, 20 is a yeah. really interesting age because I was old enough to be living on my own. I was at college, right? I, I could take care of myself day to day, but I was young enough. I, I really did not know how the world worked or my role in it, you know, all of that. And it had a profound effect on how I thought about my career and how I thought about more versus enough. Now, back then, I never would have expected that I'd write a book about this kind of thing. That wasn't in the plans at all. But I started asking questions at the age of 20 that I now see many years later, people going through some kind of a midlife crisis or some kind of real like, what is my purpose on earth thing? And the question that I would ask myself every day was, if I were to die tomorrow, because look what just happened. We, no one knows how long we have. If I were to die tomorrow, what would the world need me to do today? And it wasn't about me. Like, what do I need? My ego. It was like, what does the world need? Because we all have finite time and we all have a lot we want to contribute and can contribute to others. So I would keep asking myself this question. And the, the answer was never get more money. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. It was this sense of, yes, I need enough money for sure. I mean, at that point, it was 20. I became overnight self-sufficient, right? There was no backstop. There was no house to go home to, so to speak, when my parents died, right? It was like, okay, I've got to figure out a way to move forward. And so it was very clear to me that I needed enough money to be able to take care of myself. But anything other over that became like this, is that what the world needs for me today? And it's interesting because I spend a lot of time talking to people about grief and loss and, and this kind of change and uncertainty and what do you do when you don't know what to do as well. And never, never has the answer been on someone's deathbed that oh, I wished I'd earned more money. Now, it has definitely been, I wished I'd prioritize my family more. 
I wish I'd gone after that, that job that, that spoke to my heart, but maybe I would have earned a little bit less kind of thing. And so it's interesting because even when it comes to how to be awesome at your job, these are the kinds of value judgments and value assessments that we're doing all the time. And I think one of the best ways to be awesome at your job is to make sure that you've got a job that aligns with some of these bigger, even existential questions, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's, that's powerful and, and a lot there. And so it sounds like you've worked through some, some powerful questions that, that really get you places. Can you maybe give us a rundown of, of some of the most insight provoking questions and, and how you recommend sitting with them effectively? Hmm. What a great question. So I don't, (laughs) I don't mean for this to be a pitch for the book, but it's going to sound that way. And that is simply that at the end of each chapter, I wrote the books because I wanted to help people ask these questions and these, these questions that don't, they don't have easy answers. And the point is not to come up with the answer. The point is to actually sit with them and, and, and think about, wow, I've been so focused on metrics ABC. I hadn't even paused to consider what might be behind that or this other set of questions. So at the end of each chapter, there are a series of five questions for each chapter that are, are designed to, to provoke exactly this kind of thing. So, and again, each one tailored to, to the superpower. So I'm wondering which yeah, which one do we want to start with? I mean, what's interesting is the, the know you're enough is, is kind of the questions that we were just going after of like, what do you have too much of? What do you have too little of? Have you ever, have you ever thought of that before? And also, could you draw what enough looks like to you? Don't write it. Could you draw a picture? That gets really interesting because if you have somebody who's drawing a bunch of like houses and cars and stuff, that's, that's one view of what is more. But then actually, if you're, if you see somebody who draws a kind of earth where humans are connected and it's peaceful, that's still enough, but it's a different worldview. So that's a know you're enough, but uh, let's just take another one. Start with trust, right? Mm-hmm. This gets really interesting. So generally speaking, are you quick to trust or to mistrust? Just your default. Like if you don't know otherwise, do you trust or mistrust and why? Where does that come from? Most people, our tendency and the script that society has taught us is that humans should not trust one another. That candidly, Pete, if like, I shouldn't trust you right now and you should not trust me. That, that's what society says. And yet, where'd that come from? Like, really? Because we're in the midst of a trust crisis and trust is the way forward. And yet we're doing everything we can to undermine it. And so you start unpacking questions around trust. And you start realizing how often without our even noticing it, we have a narrative in our mind that humans on average are not trustworthy. And what's worse, very few people actually trust themselves. I mean, we learn to, but like, how does it feel? Do you trust yourself? How does it feel when others don't trust you? Oh, but turns out you don't actually generally trust other people. Like, you know, so we're trying to reset our relationship to trust because as I was saying earlier, Trust is the path forward. If we don't figure out that one thing, there's not a future in which any of us actually can have a lot of hope. But when we learn to start with trust and what I call design from trust, the whole new universe of opportunities and goodness of others shows up. So those kinds of very essential questions, back to run slower, 
Do you feel like you're running faster right today? Why? Where did that come from? When did it start? Is it something you're driving yourself to do or others are driving you to do it? You got to get this baseline and then you can start saying, okay, how do I need to bring the pendulum back, bring more balance, harmony into my life? And then in the book are the the superpowers are kind of the how to and what are the practices and disciplines and exercises you go through to improve that part of your relationship to change. Mm hmm. And well, that, that trust stuff gets me thinking of Dan Ariely's work and, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's not bad. I mean, yeah, people yeah. do cheat, but I mean, it's, humans are pretty good. I mean, you yes. know, it depends on the context and all kinds of variables that you modify, but could be a lot worse. <laughs> right. Well, I love that you bring that up because I am not saying there aren't bad apples out there. I'm not saying blind trust or naive trust or, you know, just like willy-nilly trust, but don't verify kind of thing. But what's fascinating to me is that we have designed so many of our structures, institutions, systems, right? From the basic premise that the average individual cannot be trusted. Mm -hmm. And that's the key because when we design that if, if we don't know, we do not trust. A minor flip of the switch that, again, you need to account for bad things happening and some people not being trustworthy. But if you treat that as the exception, not the rule, you design a different system. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets fascinating, because what happens when we design from a premise of mistrust, we throw out so much goodness in people. When I think about would I rather assume that people are good and have an abundance of goodness and generosity show up. And yeah, I'm gonna have to pay a price every now and again. Bad calculation didn't work out versus I'm going to live my life assuming that no one is trustworthy and live in a system that is designed for untrustworthiness. You're basically sucking the life out of you and the people around you. So you do have to be willing that you won't always get it right. But that price you're going to pay is worth its weight 10,000 fold over for all the goodness and generosity that you're going to see instead. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, April, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Oh, goodness. Fluxmindset.com. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I. it's a joy to join you today. I'm really just happy to be able to share more about it and yeah, my the way I like to put it is when everything is in flux, everything can benefit from a flux mindset. So there you have it. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? One of my favorite quotes is inspired by the last superpower, let go of the future. And it's by Lao Tzu, who wrote the Tao Te Ching. And it is when I let go of who I am, I become what I might be. So I love that. Lots of lots of good quotes from Lao Tzu. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I think one of the books that shows up in Flux and I continue to refer to time and again is called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. And it's about the relationship between mind and body, particularly around trauma, but there's a lot around just anxiety and mental health. And the body of research that's in this book around how our body holds what our minds and hearts and souls are feeling 
but without necessarily words, the ways that shows up and how much we need to pay attention to our bodies and the kinds of things they're holding that we're often burying. Absolutely cannot recommend that book enough. Mm -hmm. And is there a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? I was thinking about this because it's uh, it's so basic and yet so powerful. I use Post-its. Mm-hmm. I use Post-its for absolutely everything. I have a wall that's covered in Post-its on any given day. If you ask my, my husband when I travel, what's the first thing I pack on a business trip? It's actually Post-its. So it's simple, but it has been my super tool over the years. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate? Folks quote it back to you. There are increasingly ones about flux, but I actually kind of want to come full circle on this one, uh, back to the handstands. And it does show up a little bit in the superpower, see what's invisible, but this whole notion of the upside down perspective on the world. So I do have people often quoting some aspect of my handstands and upside down perspective. Why I bring this up is that we are trained to see things literally figuratively right side up right? There's one way that you look at something. And yet, and this goes beyond change. When we flip our perspective, and here I'll say literally and figuratively, when we look at something upside down, we see it completely differently. And what I can tell you is sometimes it looks even better. So I love this, like, flip your perspective, go upside down, see something you've been struggling with in a fresh light. You might not only see it better, but you might find your solution in your path forward. All right. And April, folks want to learn more, get in touch. Where would you point them? Fluxmindset.com is for all things flux and book related. AprilRinney.com is my personal site where you will find the handstands. (laughs) (laughs) And you have a final challenge, a call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs. Mm, I'm going to show my bias, but it is all about think about, get clear on your flux baseline groove a flux mindset, open a flux mindset, harness your flux superpowers and reshape your relationship to change from the inside out from here on forward. All right. April, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck in your fluxing. Thank you very much, Pete. And may the flux be with you. Thank you. (laughs) I really loved what April had to say about knowing you're enough. And not with the apostrophe, like what is your level of enough? And boy, the song, it's come up a couple of times in interviews that comes to mind. It's from Avid Brothers. It's called Ill With Want. And the lyric goes, I am ill with wanting and it's evil how it's got me. The more I get, the more I think I'm almost where I need to be. If only I could get a little more. And it's true that more, more, more can be seductive. And yet when you establish, hey, this is what is enough. They go, okay, cool. There we are. And you can breathe. You can feel some peace. You can chill out. You can really take a, a critical look at, all right, well, then what is the priority for me to look at here? As opposed to just acquiring more money or whatever the, the more is that can have you ill with want. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP707. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.